Welcome to the Arctic Institute's Bookshelf podcast, where we explore the diversity of Arctic knowledge. In this podcast, we amplify the voices of scholars and experts from around the world to make the Arctic easy and accessible to everyone. So tune in and join our in-depth conversations that take you beyond the headlines and right into the latest ideas, challenges and experiences from the Arctic. Hello everyone, thank you for tuning in with us today. This is a short introduction to tell you that this special episode of the Arctic Institute's Bookshelf podcast is the result of a collaboration with the Austrian Polar Research Institute. It is a research consortium with researchers from the University of Vienna, the University of Innsbruck, the University of Graz, the Central Institute of Meteorology and Geodynamics, and B.Geos. Their goal is to promote and coordinate research and education in the area of polar sciences at these institutions. You can learn more about the Austrian Polar Research Institute at www.polarresearch.at. Hello everyone and welcome to the Arctic Institute's Bookshelf podcast. My name is Romain Schiffer. And I'm Victoria Bergström. On today's episode, we're chatting with Sebastian Paul and Max Kortman from the Department of Ecology at the University of Innsbruck and the Austrian, the Austrian Polar Research Institute to talk about the top-to-top global climate expedition research project they're part of. And that expedition focuses on tracking microplastics in the Arctic. Seb and Max, thank you so much for accepting our invitation and welcome to the podcast. Before we talk a bit more about the Top to Top project, something we really like to do in this podcast is to explore our guests' Arctic background and to learn more about the Arctic story. So let's start with you, Seb, for example. How did you get interested in the Arctic as a research topic? Hi, thank you very much for this uh, introduction and for inviting us to talk to you. Um, I started my bachelor's at the University of Vienna, and I got really interested there in alpine ecology. Um, there is a institute for alpine ecology at the University of Vienna. Um, however, it's not that big, and the University of Innsbruck is a little bit more specialized in uh, alpine environments. And I decided to move here with my girlfriend because of her job. Um, and then I thought it's a great way for myself to get into like alpine science. And Doing Arctic science wasn't really my focus. Um, I kind of got into that together with Max. So uh, he introduced me to the topic and to his ideas. And then we talked about that and uh, developed something, which is very nice. Um, yeah, however, it wasn't like my, my really focus to go into the Arctic. Um, I was always fascinated about the Arctic and looking at uh, Blue Planet documentaries or something like that. I'm always like, wow, it's a spectacular environment there. Um, but I never thought that I would go there, and I never thought that I would go there by a sailing boat. What about you, Max? Is it the same story? Why did you choose to focus on the Arctic? Thank you, uh, first of all, for the opportunity to uh, be able to speak in your podcast. Um, I am just like Sebi, a mountain person, a bit of a mountain goat. And I was always into conservation of nature, basically. And I studied forestry in Germany before. Um, and for my master's degree, I decided after uh, three years of hiking and hitchhiking for Europe from national park to national park, I decided to um, get more into alpine ecology. And at the University of Innsbruck, um, thanks to our supervisor, Birgit Sattler, we have this opportunity to be able to go to a Svalbard as she has spent quite a few summer seasons there doing research. So for this, basically for our master thesis, um, we wanted, I wanted to um, use the opportunity to do something um, bigger or with a bit more of a value. And so we decided, or I had this idea to go to the Arctic um, and look for microplastics as we are doing microplastic research in the Alps near uh, Innsbruck. And it would be interesting to compare data from the Arctic and from the Alps. And then we got into it, did the literature research, and then it evolved kind of from there. We realized that it's um, 
kind of an, an, a novel field in science with very little data to date. And basically that we didn't have any Arctic background prior. We just like mountains and I really like remote environments and I really like pristine, pristine in quotation mark um, places. So going to the Arctic kind of became a dream and that dream came true. So that was quite beautiful. Yeah, that, that's really good to hear. And I like the parallel you make between the Alps and, and the Arctic, at least in terms of of um, of the environment. And I also like what Sabi said about uh, research uh, and friendship. That research project can actually stem from uh, good friendship sometimes, which is always nice to hear, I think. Um, but I think for any Arctic or polar researchers or even for people interested in the Arctic who are listening to us, uh, what is fascinating about the project and what fascinated me, I think, is to this expedition to the Arctic, like to, to actually physically go into what people think about when they think uh, about the Arctic. So I think let's dive right in uh, into your scientific expedition. And what is uh, the Top to Top project? How would you describe it to a broader audience? So Top to Top is a, f- a family that are an organization um, and they started over 20 years ago um, or over 30 years ago in Switzerland by doing like climate projects, by doing cross-country through Switzerland only by their own power. So without any cars or buses or trains or just walking, bicycles or ski touring. Um, and they wanted to kind of get a focus of global change or climate change, if you will, um, into people. And that thing evolved into them getting a sailboat and then they started sailing around the world. Um, And now they are like, they're doing that sailing around the world thing and they have been on the seven summits and they are going to schools and talking to students um, and just getting people a little bit into focus of problems with um, waste waste management, climate change, global change, um, and how for some reason they ended up in Norway um, and they found their place to be there. Um, and we got into top to top kind of accidentally, um, if you will. So so we read in a newspaper about them and we talked about this and then we found that that would be a great way for us to do research and combine it within ecosystem friendly way of doing research so that would give us the possibility to be more or less let's say co2 neutral so we are sailing around we're not going there with an airplane so everybody knows that airplanes are basically not very good for our environment Um, and then we read that they are doing that outreaching work so they're going to schools and we kind of developed the concept of asking them if we can join them if they will like be part of or we together do that research expedition go there get our sampling do that in a climate neutral way and then also do the uh, the outreaching work so we are going to schools we're talking to students and teachers and everybody that is interested and we're talking about our work um, why our work is important and why we think it's important Um, and that's kind of how we got into the top to top and then together with top to top so we had a meeting with them and we talked to Dario who is the father and uh, leader of the um, company kind of um, and at the first meeting he was very interested and he said it's he like he, he likes very much that we want to go into schools that we want to give our knowledge to younger people because next generations are going to be like here and be future leaders um, so he really liked that. And then uh, we had some, uh, some more meetings um, and he was really fascinated about our idea of sampling microplastics because they were doing microplastic sampling in the ocean, in the Arctic for several years now. And they're working together with the University of Zurich, the Norse Norwegian Center of Research and the University of Akureyri. So they had some microplastic background and, and that all of that fitted together very good. Um, and that's how we got into the top to top and being part of uh, top to top. And then, yeah, we, we started uh, this expedition. 
and and what an expedition i saw the map but for people who haven't seen uh where you've been uh, max can you can you tell us a bit more about the expedition um absolutely um basically it was it was all done this summer we um originally planned to just go to svalbard um before we we kind of had to rethink our whole uh expeditions when we met top to top before that our plan was to go to Svalbard for three weeks but with the sailboat we had this opportunity and this idea to um, get a broad picture of the whole um, kind of Greenland Sea or around the Greenland Sea around the Arctic Ocean and um, Dario also proposed the idea that he would love to go on to uh, the Berenberg which is uh, on the island of Jan Mayen which is a I think it's the, the tallest volcano in the Arctic also the highest volcano, 2,200 and some 66 meters or so. Um, so that was kind of the set thing. We want to go to Svalbard and we want to go to Jan Mayen. And then with the sailboat, you never really know where you can go because it's very weather dependent. But we started in the north of Norway um, after 10 days of quarantine. We sailed up north to Svalbard where we spent roughly two and a half weeks, I think. And we... Um, went on land there on uh, four different locations. Then we came back down to Norway, kind of refueled, refilled the boat with uh, supplies, with food, and had to wait out a storm. And then we could go to Jan Mayen, which was our next uh, kind of uh, goal. We reached Jan Mayen after like five or six days of uh, sailing with good winds. And from Jan Mayen, uh, there was a bit of a, a storm system rolling in. So our idea was to go to Greenland um, and sample Greenland, which wasn't sure if we can do it, but it turned out we could. So we went to Itukotoru Mit, which is the, I think it's the most east settlement of Inuit in on Greenland. It's kind of a, the, the last bigger village on the east coast. Um, we could sample there, then we went down south, had to wait out another storm, and then we went to Iceland. And so um, we could also sample Iceland. We sampled the highest peak of Iceland, the Konadalsnukur, and on the same glacier massive uh, on the north side, the Konadalsnukur is on the south side near the coast, and on the north side we could sample the Vestarikverk, which is um, a bit of a smaller mountain but it's completely remote for example the iceland uh, endeavor we uh, did by we had to get a rental car for that because the sampling sites were just um, not reachable by a boat as uh, the one was very like you had to drive like with a jeep for, for like half a day just over dirt roads to get to that spot um, all the other sites we could reach with the sailboat and then it was like human powered muscle powered so we hiked from the boat, from the coast, up to random remote glaciers in the Arctic and sampled them. So basically it was like two parts. The one was the Svalbard uh, trip, which in total was three and a half weeks, I think, with the sailing. And then it was the second part where we went from Jan Mayen to Greenland to Iceland. Well, that sounds like quite the expedition that you talked about, as well as um, some of the prior research. But just for a starting question, what was the purpose of the project and why did you choose Svalbard, Iceland and the east coast of Greenland as field projects, um, our field locations for this project? Because there's so many places in the Arctic. Um, why these specific locations? Um, specifically, um, we wanted to go on inland glaciers. Um, so that was why Svalbard was of interest, as you need a bit of a landmass to have a glacier. And on Svalbard, the scientific community is already um, established, in a sense. So there is uh, Longyearbyen as a bigger city, and there is New Alesund. So there's also kind of help in the field, if you'd need it. Um, and there is already data on Svalbard, uh, from, from snow on Svalbard. Um, so that is why Svalbard was of interest. Specifically, why in going to the Arctic uh, in general, uh, the main question we had was how abundant are microplastics yet? And do they have an effect on microbial communities? Um, so could, for example, and 
two biotic resistances. Um, could they? But that is a, that is his research topic also. So that's a specific research topic. He can tell you more about the the antibiotic resistance genes that um, might come into play when plastic is involved. Um, the Arctic thing was um, because there is really little known data of how far microplastic particles can transport atmospherically. So we had an air sampler with us, uh, which will which. We consider our most important samples, the ones that we took from the air. So we basically vacuumed the air on these glaciers. Um, because there is no emittent sources close by. There is no cities, there is no streets, there's no cars, there is no rubber, there is not a lot of ships, especially this summer was perfect because of Corona. Um, apart from all the bad sides Corona had for something like this, for researching Svalbard, that's really good because usually there is a lot of cruise ships circumnavigating Svalbard and they were not there. So they couldn't emit microplastics on site. And the Greenland idea and this whole like broader picture idea was there is really not a lot of data um, that is comparable in microplastic research. As basically everyone does a bit of a different methodology, the analysis in the lab uh, differs quite a bit. And um, it's very important how you take your samples as we are, we are surrounded by plastics. We wear plastic all the time. So it's really easy to contaminate a sample, especially from an environment where you expect if there is a plastic, then there's not a lot of plastic. So you can easily contaminate the sample. And the way we've seen it, or the way we thought about it, when we have a sailboat, and we can really go anywhere with the sailboat, if the weather is okay, then we can produce data that is comparable within itself, as all the data collected has been collected the same way, by the same two people, same methodology, same lab work with the data. And it would be interesting to see if, if it's the same, uh, for example, the composition, um, of the plastics, is it the same? Is it the same in the north of Svalbard as in the in the central Svalbard? Is it the same as in Greenland? Is it different? Why could it be different? Um, we would then also like to have like a bit more cooperations. We are already working on cooperations with other universities, looking at back trajectories, for example. If you find plastics, how could they get there? Like, what can we model that? Can we look at wind models and say these must come from these? bigger metropolitan areas. These in Greenland must come from, from these sites. Um, and that specifically was the reason why we wanted to get as many points around this Arctic Ocean as possible. Well, thank you so much, Max. And it's interesting that you said that plastics are everywhere because now it's like, oh no, where are plastics in my life? Yet yeah, following up and uh, as Max, as you said, um, for Sebastian, you know, following up on this expedition and prior research, it seems like microplastics are a bit of a buzzword that can be misunderstood. So for a bit of clarity, what are the consequences when microplastics are in the environment and how does this affect environmental security? Also, how do microplastics pose a risk for food security in the Arctic? So there is a lot of studies going on with microplastics and the real effects of microplastics in the environment. Um, for example, there are studies that show that like microplastics are plastic particles that are smaller than five millimeters or equal to five millimeters. Um, and somewhere really down far, there is a there is nanoplastics. But microplastics are like plastic particles that you can basically see with your bare eye. And I think you can imagine that those plastic particles can get into, for example, benthic organisms and they will block like the um, mouths, mouth of those organisms. So they, they cannot eat anymore. So that's something that, that has been seen in some studies. Um, so we see that plastic have, has a direct impact on organisms. There are other like studies and Max kind of uh, mentioned that, that I'm looking at antibiotic resistances. Um, so that's something that's going into your other question with the food security, for example. Um, so 
it's not very clear about all the effects that microplastic has on the environment and on humans, for example. And I think it's hard to really say microplastics is the problem and is causing some issues because we have a lot of pollutants around everywhere. So there are cars, there is dust um, and there is microplastics. So I don't know, It's you can't really say people are getting more like let's say allergies because of microplastics because you can't really say we will expose people just to microplastics and see if they will develop allergies so it's um, a little bit hard to really differentiate and to see the clear effect of just microplastics for example and it's not been that much into a focus of science so there are a lot of studies about microplastics and there are many more coming and there are a lot of studies coming concerning the effects of microplastics on the environment. Um, so I think we will hear about that a lot. And there has been a study that showed that microplastic can pass the placenta. So it will pass to fetus in mothers. So um, that's the study, as far as I remember, didn't really say what negative effect it had but now we know that it can pass so that's usually that's not very good um yeah and the other thing so that something that i'm looking at what max mentioned is the antibiotic resistant resistance topic with uh, microplastics and microorganisms and there are studies that show that depending on like what type of microplastic is present in the environment that antibiotic resistances in microbes are raising or like lowering so it depends on the kind of plastics that is there um yeah but that will i think that might have some impacts on humans and on our not only on the environment but also on our economy on our health system so having a lot of microorganisms that are resistant to antibiotics is usually not very good and i think it's not very cheap so we will have to work with that um so those are like yeah i hope that answers your question so there is, there are a lot of effects of microplastics and i think uh, not all of them are known or f just few of them are known but there are a lot of people behind that and looking at microplastics is getting as far as i know it's getting bigger and bigger and everybody's talking about microplastics and a friend of mine just called me 10 minutes ago or 10 minutes before we started our talk and he said i heard something new about microplastics and microplastics on glaciers here in europe so that topic is it's getting bigger and people are getting to know about it, which is great. So the feedback that we get and the knowledge that more people and more people getting interested into that topic is uh, it's great. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Um, I know you haven't or you've told me you haven't uh, processed uh, the sample yet or you haven't analyzed them yet. Uh, and that's something a question for later, I guess. Uh, but by being there, did you notice any significant differences between Svalbard, the east coast of Greenland, and Iceland. And um, did you also, I mean, uh, you mentioned that one of your supervisors went to those places. So did you mention, uh, sorry, did you uh, see any differences between their expeditions uh, years ago and your expedition as well? Okay. Um... So our supervisor, Birgit Sattler, um, was not looking for microplastics back then, as this is also technically has not really been possible to do back in the days, too, because the particles are, the, the ones we are looking at are rather small, so they're really small, so they're like probably even smaller than our detection limit, they are around 10 micrometers, which is very, very, very small. Um, so you need uh, infrared spectroscopes. I hope that's the English word. Um, special micro microscopes um, to detect them, and you need to then have a very good software that kind of can automate uh, analysis of these pictures that these microscopes take. Um, so that wasn't possible back in the days. Um, you could easily see climate change. For example, um, on Iceland, um, 
we were on Kanadal Schnukur and uh, a colleague of ours from the University of Vienna, um, a professor, she was there 30 years ago and we had a talk and she listened to the talk and then she was, uh, she was happy that she saw a picture that she took basically exactly the same picture um, of her friend um, on the glacier 30 years ago. And she sent us the picture and we have two times the exact same picture. Um, and you can see how even on Iceland, the Kanadal Schnukur on the top, the top glacier has has gotten way more crevasses and the ice cover has just uh, shrunk. Also on Svalbard, you can see all kinds of signs of climate change. So that's obvious. Climate change is, this is something that is that is very clear if no matter where you live, actually. Um, like it's raining now. We have 10 degrees. We're on in the in the Alps at the moment. It's February. That's n not the most normal of weathers. Um, um, apart from that, you could see definitely you could see differences um, comparing uh, sites. For example, on Svalbard, we have a bit of a gradient from um, humanly impacted site, which is the Longyearbyen, which is south of the main town, also of the only town, and where basically everyone lives that is on this huge island. They all are in Longyearbyen, and there um, the glacier we found plastic debris on the glacier from um, from snow scooters I think that was a plastic part that fell off from snow scooter um, but you couldn't see microplastic particles that's a bit of the problem with microplastics in general people always see plastic as garbage on the side of the road but that's not the problem the problem is that this plastic bottle will disappear for your eyes but it won't it will just become so small that it will get into the food chain because it. I mean, there's not a lot of animals that would eat a plastic bottle, but there is a lot of uh, really small organisms that do eat small colored things because they're interesting. And then it's plastic and then it's in them and then they get eaten by bigger organisms. And nanoplastics are now the new thing, actually, whereas we start to be able to analyze microplastics Nanoplastics are ex even more, ex even way more difficult to analyze. But it turns out that they can get into the cells, for example, of organisms, the plastic particles, the nanoplastics. And there's even way more nanoplastics than there is microplastics. So um, it is nothing you can really see with your own eyes. What you can see is the garbage on every beach in the Arctic. Like, ob obviously, like fishing, garbage mainly, nets and boys and all that kind of stuff also on greenland really in, in absolute no man's land of nowhere the arctic is full of the ocean the arctic ocean is full of garbage and that gets swept ashore on the arctic islands also on Jan Mayen, you can just see garbage bags flying around you're thousand kilometers away from the next piece of land in all directions like the closest thing i think would be iceland which would be a Approximately like a thousand kilometers or so away, <laughs> there's blue plastic bags flying over the beaches of Jan Mayen. And you're standing there and you're like, whoa, that's not supposed to be here. How, how is that even like a supermarket plastic bag floating around somewhere? Yeah. And what you can also, like Kanadal Schnukur, for example, in Iceland, people go up that mountain. So we actually found a bottle of uh, an energy drink. On the way up, we found another plastic bottle, and we found uh, like these uh, tea cans, like these thermos canisters. We found one of those <laughs> on the glacier. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, when people go somewhere, people tend to lose stuff. So that is something you can see. But then, obviously, when you're in a completely pristine environment, also like the northernmost spot on Svalbard, where there really nothing is around, on the Magdalena Fjord, on the Brokebreen. It looks pristine. It looks absolutely untouched. You you stand on some remote random glacier where I don't know how many Homo sapiens have ever stood upon because it would make no sense for any human being to be there in the first place. So this will be interesting if we will find something in our samples from there. Every every sample contained microplastics of every study that we that there is. And there is not a lot. So we do assume that we will find plastics there. But when you stand there, like we, we stood there, we did this air sampling and it was freezing cold. 
<laughs> we looked at each other and we were like, why are we doing this? Like, there, there can't be plastics here. Like, this, could, this wouldn't make sense if there'd be plastic here. But yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll have to see. We don't yet know. We just heavily assume that we will also find plastics there. I had a talk yesterday with a friend, with a colleague from here. And um, we also, like he said, it's, it's incredible if you imagine how much garbage must be in the oceans for there to be microplastic everywhere you look. No matter how far away from everything you get, there's microplastics. So that means there is a lot of, already there's a lot of, and we only use plastic in, in, a, in, a, in a real usage sense for a few decades. That's a really short time. And we have basically gotten it all over the globe already. If we do this a hundred more years, what what would then be? So that would be kind of important questions. So it's it's also like it's vital to look for it. And because we had problems that we did overcome, we have a big problem now that we do not seem to be so quite able to overcome with the climate change. But there is other problems lurking, and this. Pollution problematic is also a big one. Apart from everything getting warmer, also everything is getting way more polluted. And and I think on that regarding pollution, you took a stance of wanting to be environmentally friendly or as environmentally friendly as possible. You mentioned a car uh, that was taken <laughs> in Iceland. Uh, and uh, this idea of uh, traveling by fair means or by wind or muscle powers, uh, as you as you put it in your research, what were the challenges of of doing that? Of going only on relying on on human and wind power for such a big scale expedition? <laughs> That's a very good and very interesting question. Um, so there were like a lot of challenges that we had to face and. The very first challenge that we had to face was COVID. Um, our original plan was to go to Norway by um, uh, public transport. So using the train and the ferry um, to go there. And that didn't work out because of COVID. So we had to take the airplane. There was no other way that we could get into the country because they said, you have to come to the airport. Um, the next challenge that we had to face was that we were standing at the airport and the officials said, you can't enter the country because you're students. And then we had to talk to them and make clear that we are not here for studying. Like we are here for studying, but doing research and not going to the university to study. Um, and then that was a, like discussion. It took about an hour or something like that, that we like we didn't know if we really can do our project or not. Um, but it worked all great and we got there. Um, and the next challenge was, and Dario, he said that to us, he said, there is not a lot of space on that boat. I don't know if any of you or any of the listeners has some sailing background. Um, we didn't have any sailing background, so we didn't know. Um, the Pachamama, the boat, it's, it's a very good boat as far as we have gotten it to know. And uh, as far as other people told us, it's a great boat, but it's a small boat. It's 15 meters long. So there is not a lot of space. Um, so we had to think here in Innsbruck, okay, what do we need? What do we really need for our research? How big is it? Can we store it? Is it like waterproof? How does it react to temperatures? And we had some issues with our air sampler, for example. Um, that device is not really made for outdoor use. It is made for indoor use and to, to catch like the virus viruses in a hospital for example and to see how many viruses are like in the air so that was another challenge that we had to face the battery was not working very good and that like expanded the time that we had to stay on the glacier very long and there was one one sampling where max really had to stand at the device and push the on off button because that was the only way it would vacuum the air um yeah that's just something that happened because of like the device is not meant for that for that use that we had um yeah so besides having like doing some space calculations of what you really need and reducing your personal stuff for example so we had really like one pair of trousers 
of long pants and then like two pair of underpants. And so you really have to reduce because we also had to consider that we are going onto glaciers. So we would need mountaineering equipment. We would need crampons and ice axes and a rope and hard shirt jackets and pants and shoes and whatever. So there's a lot of stuff that we really needed. And then we had to rethink of what we maybe can leave here in Austria. The next challenge is, and Max mentioned that before, that you cannot really plan where you are going. That's not a fixed plan. So you always have to check the weather. And Dario was doing that every day. He was checking the weather all day long to see what winds are coming. Is a storm coming? Because weather up there is evolving very quickly. Um, so we had to check that we won't get into an Arctic storm, uh, which we didn't. Um, I'm quite happy that we didn't because I think that wouldn't have been that funny. Um, Max and I didn't get seasick. So that was great so far. Um, but I think an Arctic storm would have been something different. So we, we never really knew where we are going, if we are getting there, when we are getting there, and what time span that we have or that we can use to go on a glacier. So, for example, it happened that uh, we said we have 10 hours and we have to leave in 10 hours because another storm is coming um, and we have to leave. So that's our time slot that we have. And that's uh, that's kind of challenging. It's challenging in your preparation and it's challenging in your communication. So what can you do and what will you do and what are your goals? So getting your goals together with the environment and with the climate there, that's uh, that was really, really challenging. So we got into good spaces. We have really nice samples. We were very lucky with the weather. Um, we have a lot of samples here in Austria now, which is great, but uh, that, were, that was challenging. Um, what else was challenging about going with by fair means, as you said, um, it is, for example, thinking of like the impact of the car. So there was, it was clear for us, we have to use a car. We can't get there otherwise. Um, so that's something that we like, we accepted that and we took it. Um, one more challenge was how do we get home, um, for example. And Max, he took the public transportation way. Um, he went to Ferrer Islands with the ferry and stayed there for, an, I think, another week or something like that, then went to Denmark and then took the train back to Austria. And I took the airplane because at that point I was like, I want to go home. <laughs> I need to go home. I can't spend another week on Ferrer Island uh, somewhere in the nature. So I really wanted to get home. And that's why I took the, the airplane. But that was, um, we talked about that. And it's, that's a challenge. And if you want to go by fair means, then yeah, taking doing something like that and just taking the airplane is the easy way. Um, yeah, but it like it had to be. Um, yeah. And I think those were the like the biggest challenges, like the not knowing where you're going, when you're there, what time slot do you have? Because walking on a glacier takes a lot of time. Doing the sampling takes a lot of time. And our days were like just the sampling. Sampling days were something between eight hours and uh, 21 hours. So 21 was the longest day that we had in Iceland. So we spent 21 hours on the Kvanadal Schnuckel. Um, that was a long day. Yeah, but those are the challenges. And then we had to like think of what materials can we can we bring or can we use? For example, we had to use a plastic device, which is not very good if you're looking for plastics, but the other option was taking a glass device. And if glass breaks, it's like it's broken and you can try to fix plastics somehow. And plastics is lighter. If you don't have a lot of space and you don't have a helicopter or a snow scooter where you can pack all your stuff on, you have you only have your backpack that's about 50 liters in volume, then that's challenging. And then there there is the other challenge of this, like let's say the sport part of it, like really hiking the glacier, going there and other people hike glaciers because it's hard to hike glaciers. And we hiked glaciers and did scientific sampling there it does sound like a challenging expedition, though. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but did did any of you had? Oh, I think you mentioned this uh, off mic, uh, Max. But did any of you had a previous experience with um, hiking glaciers or skiing uh, in glaciers or just being in this environment? Yeah, I I did not really have that much experience, so I 
like hiking, I do paragliding. Um, so I know <laughs> about mountains, I know about climate a little bit, but Max, he's the real alpinist of us too. So he's an outdoor ski guide. He's doing a lot of alpinism on his own. So he was really the kind of my guide that I like, yeah, he was kind of my guide because he's more experienced in that specific environment. Um, so I have a little bit of background also from climbing where I know how to like work with ropes and carabiners and stuff like that, but really how to walk and how to read a glacier. That was Max, really Max, his, uh, his passion. That was also a bit of the um, original idea why we wanted to do it the way we did it. There is a lot of very intelligent people. Sebi and me, we both don't see ourselves in that league of like elite scientists, but elite scientists usually also spend a lot of their time in the lab and on the computer. We have an alpinistic skill, so we can take samples that would be hard to get for other people. So what we might lack in, in, in expertise, basically, because we're not doing, we're not scientists since 20 years, um, we are, we're basically learning on the job or on the fly, but we're uh, getting to know the, the topic more and more, obviously. But we already had quite a good expertise in getting into remote places and taking samples there, long, enduring sample days. Also, everyone that's been in the Arctic probably knows that those days can be rather long when the sun never sets, when you never get tired. Um, something that Sevi didn't mention um, on a sailboat, you have to sail a boat, so there's not a lot of sleep. So you're basically awake for two hours and then you can chill for two hours or three hours and then you are awake again and sit on the on the like steering wheel on the lookout of the boat and you do that for six, seven consecutive days while the whole while your whole life is like tilted 20 degrees because like the winds usually come from the side and when it's a stable wind system your life is just tilted 20 degrees to one side so it's also very uncomfortable to sleep and then there's waves and then the boat jumps all the time and um yeah but um yeah that was that was also uh, very challenging um kind of combine that to be physically out on the glacier and then you come home and then you just want to take a hot shower and just chill but you don't come home home you come onto the sailboat and there is no hot shower there's not even heating <laughs> it's just always two degrees and you have to immediately start to like steer kind of the boat again because a storm is coming so you have to leave the harbor so there's not a lot of kind of phases of relaxation so i mean the whole thing was we were on the sailboat for 46 days 45 days or 46 days then it was another 10 days on iceland and so also this is a this is obviously that takes a bit of a toll on your mental uh health as well so that's also um why sebi was then um basically we coped differently so sebi said going straight home um after this to like get like it, it's a lot of stress even though it's very beautiful there's a lot of stress stressors are on an expedition like this and for me like my coping was hey there is this ferry but then i have to stay for three days on the faroe islands because there is no ticket going through um because it was summertime and vacation was on and corona restrictions were lifted and But then there was one spot where I could go to Faroe, then I had to stay three days on the Faroe Islands, and then I could continue onwards. And so that was perfect for me, because that would be my way of kind of relaxing again, just with my backpack, hiking over the Faroe Islands, without any other things to do, with not having to think about anything, just... So, yeah, it, it, it's, not, it's not only physically um, exhausting. Mentally, an expedition like this is... Is a challenge, most certainly. Thanks, thanks a lot for sharing this. Um, I think beyond the challenges and beyond the exhaustion, uh, what were the best moments of uh, this expedition for you? Who? That's a question that is uh, definitely not easy to answer. Um, like we spent two months there. What are the best, like the really best moments? Um, but I really enjoyed or what was 
great and important for me was uh, that Max is always positive on every on like everything and especially in this environment. So standing there, being exhausted to the limit, and having somebody there that says, "Look at where we are and think of how many people get here." So that's something that really gives you power. And those were like the really great moments. And at the beginning, you mentioned the friendship that science can like yeah like bring into life so max and i we weren't friends for years we got into each other somehow because i saw him talking to our professor and i said max i saw a talk of her and i'm interested in her topic can you talk to her if she has another master topics and then he called me two days later and said yeah there's that arctic thing and then everything evolved so i think that friendship that we got here um that's something that's really that's really awesome other than that the greatest one of the greatest moments um, was being on the Kwanadol Schnukur on the highest glacier of Iceland where we had um, crevasses that were as big as a highway and the weather was getting better so we started on a cloudy day and it even rained for a short time and then it got better and the sun came out and then we stood there and just like looking at that spectacular environment and Max, he, come, he came to me and he said, congratulations to your first tour on a glacier. It's not getting better, no matter where you're going on this world. So that was something, like he said, that's something of the greatest things that he has ever seen. And he has done so much more in the mountains than I did. So getting that kind of compliment uh, was really great. And that day, was it was the longest day. It was the hardest day, but it was also the greatest day. And I think that's something that I'm really... Um, there was uh, there was there was a lot of a lot of beautiful things. Uh, it's it's funny um, uh, what Sebi just said. Um, Sebi is an extremely enduring partner. So we did actually meet coincidentally, like we studied together. Um, but then it was kind of like this random. You get a phone call. Yo, Sebi, you want to go to the Arctic with me? And he was like, totally, <laughs> yeah. And it it could be a gamble, but we never really had a bad um, vibe, so to speak, so before, but we didn't really know each other so so well, um, and I think we would we were like a match made in heaven for especially for this expedition. So we were really really good um, as partners. Also, um, for example, I I would have the the expertise to go on a glacier, but if you have that, you also need a person that is eager to learn you're together um, that's always dangerous when you go on glaciers so a two-person um, rope team i think is the english word um, is always difficult because if one falls in a crevasse and the other one doesn't know what what to do maybe both fall in the crevasse and then both are dead um, so you need someone who wants to learn how to do self-rescue how to do um, how to build up some rescue pulley systems and all that stuff and sebi was completely down that he wanted to learn and he was really eager and he also followed he complained and he suffered a lot he, I, no he didn't complain a lot he suffered a lot i suffered a lot i complained it, a lot that's okay max it's fine <laughs> okay but not in a whiny way but in a serious like you have every right to complain with the things we were doing like no one would not complain like that was extremely enduring what we did but he kept on going and he could also just have said after like two or three weeks, um, we also had phases um, like that. Where we were like, yo, do we want to like, is, is this viable the way we do it? Because it's really exhaustive. Also during the expedition. But he, he kept on going. I kept on going. We decided, hey, we are in this now. We're in this together. Let's, let's go through with this. And this Conrad Alchnukov thing, for example, I was blown away. There was like crevasses the sizes of football stadiums. And it was the see, all the other glaciers on, on on the Arctic. They are really full of snow. It's not like this glacier glacier experience where you have these huge ice walls and everything. It's all rather flat and huge, wide glaciers. But it's not like these um, alpine glaciers. Um, but the Kanadalshnuka was just mind blowing, and that was Sebi's first real, 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 real big high mountain glacier tour. And he already kind of did the pinnacle. <laughs> Of glaciers you could hike over um 
had to jump uh, one or two crevasses. We had to climb through one. Um, so that was quite quite a lot of fun that day. Other than that, these vast areas of just untouched nothingness. When you stand on Svalbard on a peak and you are above the clouds, like you start in the in the fjord and it's all foggy and then you go up on the glacier and then you're like is this good is there polar bears around we don't see anything just keep on walking and hope the sun comes out and then you get out of this cloud cover and you walk on the 750 meter high peak without a name and then you just stand there and you see these pyramids these perfect rock pyramids poking out of these just, i mean this whole island is just a glacier this whole island is a glacier the size of austria basically and just these peaks poking out like these lunatics. Like Europe must have looked in the last ice age. And you just stand there and you're like, whoa, this is this is like in one of those BBC documentaries. But I'm here. Like, this is real. I see this. Or Jan Mayen was 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 mind-blowingly beautiful, like these dark ashed volcanic sand beaches, just miles, kilometers of kilometers of nothingness, just absolute raw nothingness patches of some mosses somewhere but basically other than that just rocks and ice that was crazy to see like how broad the world is like how how much more there is how much more ecosystems there are how crazy it is that everywhere there's life no matter where you go something's living there all the time you go through the Arctic Ocean, you've been there for three days. It's 700 kilometers in every direction to every piece of land. And then there's just a bird popping out of the water. And you're like, where do you come from? What are you doing here? Why do you do that? I never, I never realized this. They just live on this gray ocean. They, that's, just, that's just their home, kind of. They chill there, fish there, sit there, fly there, dive there. I'm really excited to see if you guys will now make a documentary to rival the BBC, you know, birds of the Arctic Ocean and, and all of these all these fascinating moments that has me rather envious of um, what you both got to see. Um, but just talking about, you know, the next five years or the next steps, what do you think is next? Do you have future plans where you want to take your research and um, more so for Sebastian, do you envision this research changing in the near future with environmental changes? Or as Max, as you said earlier, what do you think is the future for microplastics or nanoplastics in research? Huh, that's a good question. I think I can't really answer that. Um, so I just, yeah, I think I'll just take it as it comes. Um, our environment will change and I think that if we let's say we can't find microplastics which I'm I think we can find but uh, let's say we don't find um, you have to recheck and to recheck again and then at some point we definitely will find microplastics everywhere um, I unfortunately I don't think that we can stop that process now um, concerning future of micro and nanoplastics I really hope that we that scientists are able to get more insight into the direct impacts of microplastics and nanoplastics on our health, on our environments and our economy. So all these parts are together um, somehow. And then I hope that we can find some way to solve problems or to work or to live with them at least. So I don't know. I heard that there are studies going on from microbes that are eating plastics I don't know if there really will be a microplastic farm where you're uh, cultivating <laughs> microorganisms and you just bring your plastic bottles there and they, they will eat it. Um, so I think there's a process now going on that we can maybe cannot really stop um, our future or the future of our, yeah, of our society, for example, that uh, we have to change a little bit in our thinking of how to use plastics if we can use plastics and that's a, like it's a super huge topic and it's also some maybe it's some philosophic topic in some way and we can't really solve that now um i personally i really want to get younger people the knowledge that we have that we can generate and really start rethinking 
with younger people. Um, so that they just like that the usage of plastic starts to reduce and that they are getting motivated when they are scientists probably to work on alternatives. So what can we use instead of plastics? Or what do we really need? Are, are we using plastics for some things that we should reduce, that we shouldn't, like, should we change our mobile phones every year and get not just microplastics, but other stuff back into the into our environments? Or can we keep our phones or something like that? So starting a process now, and I think it's really going on. So there are documentaries starting about plastics, about pollution. The European Union just did another um, law for recycling. So there is something going on. And I think that's that's quite important. I have read yesterday in a Dutch newspaper that um, uh, or an article about nanoplastics and they said it's... Um, not important anymore to prove that microplastics are abundant in the environment but now we have to really get a big picture of how they get there this is not entirely true though if we want to be scientifically correct for remote places there's not a lot of data if there is microplastics in the first place so this is still relevant to check is it there but obviously um it's there now. So now you have to think uh, beyond that. So you need, for example, take a sample of um, three or four glaciers on Svalbard, but do it every summer. Do it the same with the same equipment, the same sampling people, same weather periods that you had. That you don't sample after a rain and then the next time you sample after three, day, three weeks of sunshine because that uh, vastly diff, uh, can can influence the amount of microplastics on the top of the snow layer, for example. So this would then probably be, now we went and looked, is it there? I specifically also look if it's in feces. So we collected quite a, quite a lot of feces from quite a lot of species that um, we could find. CB is looking in the, into the microbial communities. And for a PhD, it would be interesting to have like a, a comparison or along a time scale, for example, or have uh, two or three samples during one summer, comparing them, as our samples also are on a gradient from from a high point on the glacier, usually around seven, eight hundred meters down to the fjords, down to the oceans. So per glacier, we have a transect, and every two hundred meters, we took all the samples we could. So ice, snow, water, sediment, whatever there was, we sampled it, kind of, and. That this big expedition as two master theses um, needs support and collaborations, and we already have collaborations with quite big institutes also in in Austria and in Germany, and in Norway. So it would only make sense to build up on that. We do have a lot of we do start to have a lot of knowledge about this topic, obviously, um, as the analysis by itself is. is, is, is just the science in itself. How do you even then find particles on the filters? Super complicated. So you need a radio chemists basically for that and not ecologists. So if we have all that, it would only make sense to um, then also go further. But yeah, it's it's still two master theses. And as Sebi said, it's three years for two master theses. Um, people that we had some talks with from other universities um, we're kind of shocked. That's usually the reaction when they realize that this is for two master theses and not a research project from a university. So it's a lot of work. And a lot of work usually leads to a bit of stress. And a bit of stress leads to also maybe having to pause for a few months when this is done and re reconsider. But yeah, that would be the, the big thing. And yeah, that would also be the future of micro and nanoplastic sampling um, to have like a time frames or to have spots from the same location, but a lot of samples. So you need to have automation of the lab work. You, you are starting to have standardized protocols for most um, so that everyone kind of samples in a similar fashion and you are starting to be able to aut automatize or automize? Automatize? <laughs> the a picture analysis um, of the pictures that the microscopes then take of the filters and that is important because otherwise you cannot you cannot like take a sample every day and then analyze it 
if the machine by itself takes a day to take a picture of the filter and then you take a week to then look at the picture and say this is a plastic particle and this is not a plastic particle. But if this is all automated, then you can do that. And that would be the future. I think that's a good, very good point to wrap it up. Um, thanks a lot, Seb and Max, for sharing your research and expedition with us. If people are interested in learning more about your research, where can they follow you? Um, so people can follow us on social media. We have Facebook and Instagram. Um, it's plastic.arctic. And we also have a YouTube channel, plastic.arctic, um, where we have some videos from our expedition where we, for example, explain our research, um, our study design, um, or just have just have a video to give some insights on uh, how everything's going and how uh, done we are, kind of. Um, so there are funny videos and there are interesting videos and there are maybe boring videos where we just like explain something. Um, so that's where you can follow us. Um, yeah, you can contact us directly there on the chat, for example, and then we can uh, see if we can have a Zoom meeting or whatever people are interested in. That's, that's where you can find us.